Hello and welcome to Trust Issues. I'm Rachel Botsman and this is the podcast where we have a frank and warm discussion about how trust shapes the way we live, love and work. I had a a student who came up after the class and said, you know, this is really easy for you to talk about because you seem to always achieve your goals. And, you know, what about those of us who set goals and fall fall short of them? Mm. I said, are you kidding? You know, my bio doesn't necessarily list all the goals that I fell short of or that I failed on, but I have lots of them. So today we're joined by one of my favorite psychologists and best-selling author, the brilliant and very wise Adam Grant. Uh, It's tricky to know how to introduce Adam because he's done so much to help people, including myself, think differently about how we can all lead more generous and creative lives. Amongst Adam's many achievements, he's been Wharton's top-rated professor for seven years straight. He's the author of not one, but three New York Times bestselling books, the host of Ted's podcast, Work Life, and has his first children's book coming out this year. No wonder people call him a rock star professor. Uh, But I discovered recently, while skiing with him, that he does have a weakness in his superhuman capabilities and that he has absolutely no sense of direction. On that note, (laughs) (laughs) hello, Adam. Hey, Rachel, that is so true, among many weaknesses. (laughs) I was listening to one of your podcasts recently that you did with Ted, and um, it's brilliant. It's called How to Trust People You Don't Like. And I'm intrigued as to why you decided to do that episode. And if you could tell us a little bit about the story of the three astronauts, the Russian, the Italian, and the American. Yeah, it it sounds like a joke, right? They walk into a bar, (laughs) but no. What was interesting when when I started to talk with um, so with Jeff Ashby and Paolo Nespoli and Katie Coleman, one of the things they told me was they're actually not too close for comfort when you go on an extended <laughs> space flight. Uh, like the you know if if you're on the International Space Station uh, and you're going to spend a bunch of months there, it's pretty empty. Uh, you know, it's like a giant cavernous space, and you could if you you know if you wanted to and and the mission allowed for it, you could actually go a very long time without even seeing you know another member of the crew. Katie was really clear in saying, look, the hardest thing about being an astronaut is you have to trust the people that you go into space with. It's life and death. Hmm. Right? If, if I cannot trust the other people in my crew, then I'm not going to delegate decisions to them where they might actually have more expertise than me. Do you think you can accelerate that process? And the reason why I ask that question is one of the things I hate, my pet peeves, is when leaders and companies talk about we're going to build trust We've got a trust plan to build trust. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then, why does the, that bother you, Rachel? What? First of all, I hate the language of building trust because it makes it sound like it's something hard and it's something physical and it's something you're in control of, and something fixed, right? Versus something that is given to you, and that's something you have to continuously earn. So rather than saying we're going to build trust, it's like how, what kind of culture are we going to create that we have to continuously earn trust from each other? Oh, I love and, that. And so it, it's, it's like a state, not a fixed asset that they can put strategic plan against. And one of the, the questions I'm often asked is, do you know what, like this, this building trust program, it's, it's not really moving quick enough. We haven't seen sort of an <laughs> uptick in our metrics. Uh, it's, I don't even know how they're measuring it. And do you have any tips on how you can accelerate this process of, of building trust? And I'm just intrigued oh. as whether you think in different contexts in your life, whether you can accelerate the process of, of earning trust. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So I, first of all, I, I love this, this shift away from building trust because you're right. It's not like some tower made out of bricks that once you finish constructing it, mm. it's just going to stand. Um, it's, it's always, it's always wobbling, right? It's, um, mm. I feel like trust is, is something exactly as you described. It's something that, that frequently has to be reestablished uh, or at least reinforced over and over again. Uh, so maybe, maybe trust is a little bit more like the leaning tower of Pisa. I think there, there definitely are things that you can do to accelerate trust. You brought up earlier the idea that we trust people who are similar to us in one way or another. Um, and that's it's probably one of the most robust effects in the history of social science. Mm. But I think that, that people underestimate the importance of, of being thoughtful about what kinds of similarities we're establishing. Right. So if, um, you know, if, <laughs> if I'm I, so I live in Philly. And if I'm walking down the streets of Philadelphia and I meet someone who's always, who's also from Philadelphia, we're not immediately best friends. Right? We, I'm like, well, there are a lot of there are a lot of Philadelphians here. There's no particular reason that I should, you know, I should feel like I know you or I have something in common with you. And yet, if I were to meet that same person uh, walking through the streets of London, I would immediately feel a bond. In psychology, that's that's often called an uncommon commonality. You know, that we trust people who share not just any similarity, but a similarity that's self-defining and a similarity that's rare. And so I think part of accelerating, you know, the earning of trust is to help people uncover things that they, they share that are important to who they are and that are also pretty unusual. And that's, you know, that's, that's a big part of what the astronauts did. So when, uh, you know, the American, the Italian and the Russian uh, astronaut come together uh, in the wilderness, one of the things he he asked them was, "Why did you want to become an astronaut?" And you know, strangely, this was so surprising to me that they had never thought to share their origin stories. Hmm. Yeah, you know, they kind of all assumed like, "Oh, we watched a rocket take off," you know, when we were kids, and then immediately knew I wanted to do that. But each person's story, you know, was was idiosyncratic, and yet there are very few people on Earth who have who have ever lived who have had that defining moment where they said, "I want to be an astronaut," and then actually become one. And that's incredibly central to all of their identities. And it's also, you know, very, very sort of distinctive, right? There aren't, there aren't that many people who share it. And so I think after they, they had that discussion and they each shared that story, they, they expressed a little vulnerability, but they found a, a fundamental uncommon commonality that, that made them feel like they were part of a group and they shared a, a mission in life together. I read your newsletter, Granted. Which is brilliant. Thank you. And in a recent one, you wrote about the dangers of following your intuition. And this really struck a chord with me because as a child, I remember from an early age, people saying things like, out of the mouth of babe. And she has really high EQ. And um, she's really emotionally intelligent. I don't know what that meant, you know, that I lacked intelligence in other areas. But basically, <laughs> you know, my mom saying that I had really high intuition around people and that I should always use that intuition and listen to it. And I remember getting into my 20s and making some pretty bad decisions around boyfriends and bosses in particular, because I always followed my intuition. And I realized that I actually didn't seek enough information it's like I just take a job based on instinct without asking enough questions. So the piece really struck a chord, but I'm just interested in when you think you should trust your instinct and gut and why you decided to write that piece. Your story is exactly what scares me about intuition. Hmm. Is people learn through experience or through feedback 
that they have really good intuition and then they don't question it. Mm. And at some point that can lead you into, yeah, getting, you know, getting hired by the wrong person, uh, trusting the wrong collaborator, marrying the wrong person. Right. Because like, I have a good feeling about this person. My gut's never wrong. Mm. Really? Really? Do you think with your gut? Do you have brain cells there? (laughs) Maybe. I don't. But I think that, you know, what I always want to do then is say, okay, look, intuition is a source of information. It's a, you know, it's a data point we should learn from, but it shouldn't drive our decision making, right? We should incorporate it. And what I think that, you know, often intuition is used as a justification for, uh, for not, you know, not actually analyzing a problem, Mm. not engaging in enough logical reasoning, um, or it's sometimes, <laughs> I, I hate to say this, but I think sometimes uh, it, it helps people feel like there's, there's order in the universe, right? And it's, it's kind of, it's code for, for saying, look, you know, I, I, there's a higher power that's given me this intuition and therefore I need to follow it. Mm. And it allows you then to not feel responsible for your decisions and to not have to beat yourself up if you've made a mistake because, oh, you know what? Well, I, I was just following my intuition and that's what we're all supposed to do. I didn't, I didn't have an alternative. So I I obviously think that's a problem. And when I think about what intuition is psychologically, all it is is subconscious pattern recognition. Hmm. Right? When when you have an intuition about something, that that means that you're detecting a pattern in the present. You can't consciously explain how you're detecting it, but you've picked it up that, you know, reminds you of a bunch of things you've experienced or witnessed in the past. And so it's why, for example, um, oftentimes nurses are able to diagnose a particular illness that that a patient will come in with before the medical test produces it because you know maybe there's a faint odor that happened to be present in you know the same diagnosis a bunch of times they hadn't connected the dots consciously but they recognize it and they say ah i know what that is now and so i want us to learn from that information but i feel like what we should all do is instead of just trusting our intuition we should test our intuition hmm. and say okay let me try to make the patterns conscious and then figure out all right you know, I'm, let's say I'm, you know, I'm trying to choose, uh, you know, a new job. Um, and intuitively, this feels the right job, like the right job. Why? What is it about the people? What is it about the nature mm-hmm. of the work? What is it about the culture? And then, you know, are the patterns that I've experienced in the past actually relevant to this current situation? And th- I think sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. It's so interesting why sometimes people don't feel like they're entitled to ask those questions. You know, when, when people tell me about bad trust decisions they've made. The common thread is that they often haven't had enough information, yet some, you say, well, why didn't you ask that question? And and they say, well, that would have made me uncomfortable. I didn't feel I had even the right to ask that question. And, you know, one of my favorite trust theorists is, is Diego Gambetta, and the quote always goes through my head, you know, trust has two enemies, not one, bad character and poor information. I think intuition is more helpful around character and it's the information piece that means that we give our trust away too easily because we don't have the right kind of information to make good decisions. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that it's, I guess it worries me more as we think about how rapidly the world is changing. So, you know, if, if, if you are, if you're relying solely on your intuition, then you're trusting that the patterns you've learned from in the past mm. are, are going are, to, they're going to persist. And I think about, you know, I see this all the time with venture capitalists. Uh, there's, hmm. there's nothing that, that bothers me more in this domain than, than a, an investor who says, I make my bets <laughs> based on intuition. And I'm like, well, 
you know, you did a really good job building up an intuition in the 1990s before the dot-com <laughs> bust. And I'm pretty sure that the patterns that predicted whether a startup was going to succeed or fail then are not the same as those that are relevant today. And so you ought to be trying to figure out where your intuition is reliable and where it is totally untrustworthy. But they had a good feeling, Adam. They had a good feeling about the entrepreneur. Yeah, and they can keep that good feeling until they go bankrupt, and then it will <laughs> turn into a very bad feeling, right? Yeah. Well, on, on that note, um, you are a trusted expert, and it's something that I've been giving more and more thought to around the responsibility of being, I even hate the phrase, a trusted expert. Uh, particularly when you hear people say, I, he- I heard you say this soundbite, and then they've gone on, acted on it, but they haven't listened to the other 45 minutes of what you've said. Do you think about the responsibility of being such a trusted expert? And how does that make you feel? Oh, yeah, I think about it a lot. I feel like my responsibility as, you know, as someone who is trusted for you know, a particular do- domain of expertise around work in psychology I feel like my my responsibility is one to to share as much evidence-based insight as possible and to try to look to what the best evidence says on a given topic. And then two, if if I'm going to share ideas or views that don't have systematic data behind them, then they ought to be perspectives that lead people to think more deeply or more broadly. Hmm. In other words, I don't think I'm adding a lot of value if, uh, if what I share is always confirming intuition, right? I think, it should, I think it should lead people to question their intuition or complicate their intuition. Mm. And so I think about that as something that, you know, is a source of trust over time, uh, right? So <laughs> there's a risk as somebody who, I guess, you know, originally uh, got... I got on the radar of, of a lot of my readers and listeners by writing about generosity. I felt like, the, you know, there's a risk of being perceived as a Pollyanna when you study a topic like that. And I would have people every once in a while say, like, you don't really believe that nice, nice guys finish first, do you? And I'd say, well, I actually don't have beliefs. I, have, I try to look at what the data says and here's what the data show. And so you know, being willing to, you know, to, to challenge my own arguments, right, to complicate my own data and say, yeah, you know, generous people are more likely to finish first. They are also more likely to finish last. Um, being willing to, you know, to call out fads and myths mm-hmm. when, you know, when I think they, they need to be questioned. I think that is built trust over time. But I think sometimes it means that, you know, I'm, I, I end up being contrarian in ways that are uncomfortable. And, you know, maybe, maybe that leads some people not to trust me. Maybe sometimes, uh, you know, there's there, there's a fork in the road around. Okay, do I do I want to be do I want to speak uh, do I want to speak, you know, what I think is is close to truth, or do I want to be a beloved guru? Hmm. And you know, I I, I always want to go down the first path, not the second. Uh, and I th- I think about that a lot because there are times when it'd be very easy to you know to jump on a popular bandwagon. And I, I very deliberately want to stand by, you know, the best evidence and the most credible insight that I can deliver. And I think sometimes that comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a good feeling about you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't trust that feeling ever. I'm joking. Um, thank you so much for your time and your honesty. It was great. No, I think we covered a lot of ground as well. So, um Hello again, Adam. 
Hey, Rachel, how are you? I'm really well. Thank you for coming back and having a second conversation. The reason why I wanted to do this is I went back and listened to what we talked about. And I realized that we didn't really get to the heart of what your trust issue is. And when Wait, I'm, I have a trust issue? <laughs> well, we're going to find out if you have a trust issue. <laughs> I hope you don't mind me sharing, but you actually sent me an email and you were the only guest to do this, to ask me feedback on how you did. And then I gave you feedback and you gave me feedback on my feedback saying that oh, you no. wanted better feedback. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I mean this in, in the nicest way. You have almost an obsession with feedback and these loops. And I'm really interested where you think that comes from. Well, I think I, I only gave you feedback on your feedback because I felt like you were pulling punches, Rachel. And I felt like, you know, you I, I know you're very capable of, of being a tough critic. And I felt like you you weren't being one maybe because, well, I guess the simple way to say it is I, I felt like, you know, maybe, maybe you thought it was rude or cruel uh, to criticize somebody who had just spent time doing a conversation with you. But I, I wanted to make it clear that was not the case. Um, so to answer your question, I think... I mean, the, the, the basic answer is I, I don't know any other way to get better. And I guess I'm someone who cares a lot about excellence. And to me, part of achieving excellence is never being satisfied with yesterday's performance and always asking, how can I do better tomorrow? And I, I've, I guess I've chosen a, a series of activities where it's very hard to see yourself with, with an independent view. And so the only way that I know to improve is to ask people I really trust, uh, whose excellence I admire, how I can how I can do that. So is it really about you and not how other people perceive you? What do you mean? So that that this this need for self improvement, you're doing it for yourself, versus how you look in the eyes of other people. Oh, I don't think those two things can be separated. I, I think both are important to me. I think both are probably important to some degree to everyone. I think, you know, I think some of it is personal standards and saying, look, you know, even, even if, if nobody else was able to see, I, I saw this a ton in diving. I would make these tiny little changes that, you know, I could see the impact of, but it wasn't clear whether, you know, a judge or a coach would notice the difference, let alone, you know, a, a random observer. Mm. Um, but they mattered to me because I wanted to to be as good as I, I could get. And I think the you know, the same is true in whether it's teaching or speaking or writing. But I also care that people feel like I'm doing my best work. Mm. I care, I guess, you know, I... <laughs> Uh, to to be really candid about it, I I enjoy I enjoy impressing people, hmm. uh, and I think you know some some of that might be uh, might be ego. Some of that also though is I really enjoy being impressed, right? Hmm. So I the feedback on the feedback is not a criticism because I I sort of well I do share your obsession and for me it's the place that I learn, but sometimes I have to be honest that I think, why can't I just let go? Why can't I just let things be the way they are? And one of the things I was thinking about when I was listening to our conversation was um, something that happened to me a year or so ago when I was doing the last book tour. And I had always had this fascination and dream with the Lincoln Center. 
Uh, I think it came from when my parents took me as a very young child to see a ballet there. And then when I lived in New York, I thought it was the most beautiful building and it looked like this giant red velvet jewellery box. And then when I was doing the tour, I had the opportunity to do a talk there, a 90-minute talk. And I was standing backstage and I was so excited and all I wanted to do was try on the tutus because the the New York Ballet were there and I was thinking, well, it won't really work if I go out in a tutu. And it was (laughs) was one of those moments, you know, where you really pinch yourself thinking, I was out there as a five-year-old and now I'm going to get to step out and talk to 90 minutes to an audience and what a privilege that is. And it was one of those experiences where you know you've, you've given the audience quite a bit and you experience that real high. And I came off the stage and the first thing I did was, how could I do better? What should I change? What worked this time? What should we put in the next speech? And I literally had to say to myself, why can you not just enjoy the moment? (laughs) And I wonder if you ever thought about that, that... Do you think, like, I know that there's learning, but there is also, it's like an obsessive control thing as well, that if we always want to improve, that we can't enjoy where we're at now and who we are now. Um, Yeah, I think there's there's some of that. I mean, it it reminds me of the E.B. White quote that I love so much, uh, where he said, you know, I rise in the morning torn between the desire to enjoy the world and the desire to improve the world. And this makes it difficult to plan the day. I feel that all the time. Most of the time, I choose trying to improve both myself and the world over mm. over trying to enjoy it. You know, if, if I were in your shoes as a speaker, Rachel, I would do the exact same thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that that needs to be savored. I think, you know, it's, it's part of what keeps you motivated is asking that question. Okay, what can I learn, learn from this? How can I grow from this? But do you not think there's certain situations where we should just let go and that this even this idea of always working towards being our best selves that we can lose sight of where we are now. I would be really cautious about using the word should because I think it implies some kind of moral duty or obligation uh, when I think this is a free choice. And I'm very comfortable making the choice to say, hey, you know what? I, I choose, I choose to, to try to develop from this experience mm. as opposed to just revel in it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that those of us who are uh, who are long on meaning or who you know who are extremely invested in in learning and development uh, yeah you know sometimes we might err too far on the side of of not appreciating amazing experiences and i think that becomes a problem when when that undermines your motivation so you know for me most of the time it's really motivating yeah. to say hey i think that went extremely well but maybe i can i can make it even better and then, you know, I'm excited to try to close the gap between where I was today, even if today was a high point, and where I want to where I want to be tomorrow. But, you know, there are times when <laughs> I, I remember after giving my first TED Talk, uh, I, you know, I, I just I felt like, OK, well, what, what's what's the next talk I'm going to mm. give? And, you know, I probably I probably should have stopped and said, wow, this this is a really amazing experience. And it's, you know, not something for many years that I ever thought I'd have the opportunity to do. And appreciating that is, you know, is a way, I guess, to, to put a capstone on, you know, on a, <laughs> a, a set of goals and, you know, a lot of, a lot of effort and practice and say, all right, you know what, I, I accomplished something. Hmm. 
And you know that that is worth enjoying, and that can then be something to look forward to, as opposed to yet another stepping stone toward this kind of <laughs> this this never-ending cycle of of attempted improvement. See, I I totally relate that what it does is it it feels like it's you're continually moving forward, right? So that even in the moment when you're setting sort of the next go, oh, I've just done one TED speech. What's the next TED talk I'm going to do? You're setting the thing that you're going to move towards. And I wonder, though, like, I've realized by thinking about this, just one of the reasons why I also ask for feedback is because I'm uncomfortable with the moment of compliments and that the feedback oh, of course. actually fills that void. So, you know, oh, you were great. So awkward. It's so awkward, right? So, so awkward. It's a great way to diffuse that where you're like, oh, thank you for that. What could I have done better? Yeah, I think... I think when people compliment you, you know, for for anyone who's not an extreme narcissist, it, it violates a social norm of humility. And I like to entertain people. I might even like to impress them. I definitely do not want to be on a pedestal. And it makes me extremely uncomfortable if if somebody, you know, is is suggesting that I'm in some way superior to them. And so, you know, when when they say, "Wow, you know, that that was that was a really, you know, a really wonderful talk." My first instinct is to say, well, it, it was far from perfect. And this is, you know, the, the, I guess it's a way of leveling the playing field to say, hey, wait, let's, let's, let's not make this about me and, you know, you praising me. Let's mm. make this about saying, hey, you sitting in my audience have insight and expertise and experience and perspective that I don't have. And I want to give you the opportunity to share that um, and, you know, and feel like you have something to contribute. And I... I think that's I think that's mostly a healthy impulse, even if it comes from a a psychoanalytically weird place. <laughs> I think though that you know at, at some level we ought to apply the same discipline to the the positive as well. And I think this is where we maybe do ourselves a disservice. I for a long time would say, Great, what can I do better? Just like you do. And one of the things I've started doing recently is saying, Well, wait a minute. Non-specific praise uh, is is useless, um, but that doesn't mean you need specific criticism. That might mean there are moments of specific praise that you could learn from, mm. and you know either expand or you know or repeat or extend in some way. And so, one of the things I've started doing before I go to the the how can I improve question is when somebody says, "Hey, wow, that you know that was a great talk." My first question is, "Oh, interesting. What did you think was great about it?" And I would have been uncomfortable doing that for a long time because it felt like, you know, I was I was just fishing for more compliments. But I try to do it now with the same discipline that I asked for criticism and say, hey, you know, I, I really want to understand, you know, if, if there was in that 45 minutes I just spent on stage, if there was a even a minute or two that you thought was great, mm. what was that? Mm. So that, you know, I can I can then analyze it and and try to do more of it in you know in my next talk. It's, and then okay, now you've you've done you've done that and you've you've shared with me some some insight there. Now can you you apply the same level of precision to your criticism as you just did to your compliment? So are there any other areas of your life where you don't need this feedback? Hmm. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I suppose there are areas where where excellence is is not a goal, uh, or where I'm just so in the moment that I'm not. I guess I, there 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 are things I do that are are oriented toward finding flow, as opposed to producing a result. 
So interestingly, I guess as a, a simple example, uh, one of my hobbies is playing ultimate frisbee. Right. And I virtually never ask for feedback because I'm <laughs> not frisbee, playing ultimate Adam. frisbee to get better. <laughs> no, not from the frisbee, from from my teammates. The one other thing I want to pick up on, and it, it and it relates to this this feedback thread, is that we talked about this idea about earning versus building trust. And you said, oh, that's really interesting because I've always used the language of building trust versus like trying to continuously earn trust. And then literally a minute later, you went straight into a metaphor about building and reinforcing the Tower of Pisa. I'm wondering... I have no recollection of this, by the way, oh, but right. go on. So it really didn't have any impact. I... <laughs> no, no, I, I remember the building-earning distinction, right. and I've been thinking a lot about that. The, the Tower of Pisa is lost on me. I'm interested in why you think you may have fallen back into this language and whether it's tied to this idea of not being able to control whether someone trusts you or not, whether that bothers you. Oh, yeah, it definitely bothers me. I think some of it is just reflex. Uh, you know, I, I've talked about trust as something you build for a long time, and so it's, it's a familiar metaphor. I think, though, you're right. The idea that whether you trust me or not is completely out of my hands at the end of the day, even though there are actions I take that, that might influence how much you trust me or whether you trust me. Um, yeah, that's uncomfortable because uh, I guess being trustworthy is one of my core values when I think about uh, the relationships that I form and maintain and, and try to strengthen. And if, if that's not something that I can earn, if I have to depend on you to grant it, that means that it becomes a little harder for me to to live by one of my values, mm. which is at minimum annoying um, <laughs> and at maximum maybe, you know, existentially distressing. Um, you know, it, uh, a couple of my colleagues, um, Jane Dutton and Amy Resneski, and then later Sue Ashford and and uh, Scott DeRue, uh, wrote about the idea that that almost anything that's intrinsically valuable in life uh, cannot cannot be claimed. Uh, it can only be earned and then granted. Hmm. Uh, and it, Jane and Amy had written about how this is true for, for identities uh, and that in relationships, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to, to, to claim identities and say, you know, this is who I am. And what we really need to do is, is earn those identities through our behavior and then have other people validate them. And then, um, Scott and, and Sue wrote about how that's that's true for leadership as well, that you can't just assert yourself a leader. Uh, you can't walk mm. around and, and say, hey, you know, people follow me, no matter how many followers you have on social media. Uh, last I checked, that does not make you a leader. Mm. Uh, people need to be following you toward a common goal uh, that's that's considered worthy in, in some way. And so, you know, that, that too is something that you earn. It's something that then other people grant uh, and I think that that's true for, for any status marker. And so I guess I've been okay with that for a while. And I, I actually think that's a good thing, right? I think it's a good mm-hmm. thing that people can't, can't claim to be leaders, right? That that's, that's a responsibility they earn and, um, and it requires trust to be bestowed upon them. Um, but the, the broader idea that, you know, that I can't build trust, that I can't directly control it and shape it and sculpt it and mold it through my actions uh, yeah, that definitely bothers me. Do you think, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm pu- <laughs> I'm trying to diagnose you here, but I do think it is interesting where this pattern of feedback and 
iteration and practice and perfectionism, but understanding why you do those things, but whether that ties into a trust issue around control that has maybe got in the way in any areas of your life? Yeah, I can I can see that. I think... Sorry, I'm slightly distracted by the fact that I think this is the third time in this discussion uh, that you've you felt a need to preface uh, something you were to, you were going to say to me by letting me know that you were not intending to criticize me uh, or or psychoanalyze me, which is so interesting. I wonder why you think I'm so thin skinned. Uh, but we can we could table that for a moment. Uh, let me. Do let you me want try some to... feedback on that right now? Yes, please. <laughs> That's not about you. That's about me. <laughs> this is what I think. I know. I, fig- I, fi- I figured you were just, again, trying to be polite uh, or not wanting to offend. Uh, but I, I also hope, and this goes right to the issue of trust and control. So uh, this is not as much of a sidebar as I thought it was going to be. Uh, so you can, you can drop the tangent It was a good deflection, alert. but you've got to come back to it now. Yeah, no. I, I actually think it ties right back to it, which is I the fact that you feel like you should do that or your impulse is to do that. Mm three times in less than half an hour makes me feel like I have failed to build the level of trust that I want to create where, you know, you, you feel comfortable pointing out anything you observe about me and know that one, I, I trust that it's coming from a place of, of genuinely wanting to understand or improve or, you know, point out a blind spot in my thinking in some way. Um, and two, that my hope is that if I have earned, I'm going to try to say this in in the language that I think you're you're right about, even though I don't like it. Um, if if I have earned your trust and also made it clear to you that you've earned mine, uh, then it wouldn't even occur to you mm-hmm. to say those things. You would just say what's on your mind and know that I would I would trust your intentions and and you would have meta trust in that. <laughs> Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. But I think and I hate that I can't control that. Mm-hmm. I hate that. I hate that. In, in the time we've spent together, I haven't done enough to establish that. But don't you see that's not necessarily about you. That might be about me and about me. Sure, giving but, my... but, Go on. but stop trying to make it about you. If, <laughs> if, I've, if I've been successful, maybe no matter who you are, sure. I can earn that. Is, is, you know, at least the thought that I entertain. But I think it's a really important point because I, I see and feel that so many people hold back on the feedback that we really need to hear, the feedback that really can help us move forward because it's really hard to send those signals that it is safe and that I do want it and that it will be taken the right way. And so I think people find it very hard to have tough conversations, particularly around issues that can lead to distrust because it's hard to tell that other person or give that person permission for them to feel safe enough to say the things they really want to say. I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, it's, it certainly tracks closely with, with the, the extensive research literature on psychological safety and how hard it is to build. I, I guess I would be very curious about whether there are there are ways, given all the time you spent studying and thinking and teaching and speaking about trust, whether there are ways that I can make it clearer to people and and really convince them that it's true, that I will always trust them more if they give me the unfiltered criticism. Mm. 
if you know if they tell me what's actually on their minds as opposed to saying what they think I want to hear or trying to sugarcoat or you know trying to to make sure that I'm not offended. I, I'm more offended by the thought that somebody might have something in their head that could help me and they withhold it as opposed to sharing it. Hmm. So how how do I get people to to trust that that's true? And I know you're going to say, I can't get people to do that, but how do I increase the probability that they do that? Well, I think this idea that you're not on a pedestal is something that is going to be hard for many people. So this idea that you're on their level and they don't look up to you is not going to be how most people feel or perceive you. So how you send a signal around that, and maybe you are on the pedestal, but you and the person perceives that they can't give you the feedback or tell you what you need to hear because they do see you on a higher level. I think that is is maybe a reality that you have to think through is the first thing. I think the second thing is, and you do do this, but when you receive the feedback that is helpful, it's kind of acknowledging that and explaining why it's helpful that then gives people permission to be more and more honest with you, but not expecting them to go to that level of honesty that maybe is completely comfortable to you because you've worked this muscle so many times, but just fills them with complete dread. So I think it's how you give them permission through acknowledgement to be more and more honest versus criticizing the feedback out the gate. Yeah. I think I think that resonates. I think it's definitely gotten harder over time to get people to give it. Hmm. And one of, one of the ways that I've I've tried to make that clear uh, is is actually through you know through sharing past examples of people you know telling me things that maybe they they thought I didn't want to hear and how much I valued it. Hmm. Uh, which uh, I'm I'm excited about uh, a, a big experiment that uh, doctoral student Constantinos Kudaferis and I just uh, just finished where we found that when, when leaders actually share the past feedback that they've received, especially the past criticism, um, it actually promotes psychological safety. Uh, because instead of just saying, give me feedback, which leaves it uncertain about how I'm going to respond, I might still bite your head off. I might still decide that, you know, that I didn't like it, even, even if I told you I wanted it. Um, if I can give you real examples of, of times when, when somebody was, was extremely frank with me, uh, and I appreciated appreciated it and benefited from it and was open to it. Uh, that that's a much clearer signal that <laughs> that I'm going to respond in in a trusting and maybe trustworthy fashion. And so um, I think that that has helped on the margin. And I probably don't do it enough. And I wonder, yeah, I th- I think that's something I need to do more of. Well, I think you're getting at something so important, and it's something you talk about a lot which is the vulnerability loop the tie between vulnerability and and trust and I think the more successful you become the harder it can be to really signal vulnerability in a way that allows the other person to be vulnerable as well yeah yeah I think it does and I think since we last talked there was a there was a a big paper that came out which was on the idea that that vulnerability is not necessarily equally easy if you're a woman. So um, Jonathan Evans uh, and colleagues did this really interesting research, which shows that uh, if you tell self-deprecating jokes during a presentation, uh, if you're a man and a leader, you're seen as more competent. 
And if you're a woman and a leader, you're seen as less competent. How many more of these double binds do we need to discover that, that are incredibly unfair to women? Mm. Uh, I think, you know, we, we need to stop perceiving, <laughs> we need to stop interpreting vulnerability through the, the filter of gender mm-hmm. and start saying, huh, if somebody makes fun of themselves, um, that's an act of vulnerability that requires real courage mm. and usually also some wit. And we should take that as a sign that they're competent and yeah. that they also are willing to extend their trust to us, uh, as opposed to saying, well, it's a woman doing that. Therefore, she must really not know what she's doing or she must lack confidence. Uh, I think that's absurd that that happens still in the 21st century. But I, I feel like it needs to be mentioned as a maybe as a cautionary note that it's easier for me to get away with with this kind of vulnerability because I think, you know, as a white man, it's more likely that people just assume by default that I'm, I'm competent. Mm. Adam, I appreciate you coming back and trying to stitch some of the threads together. I'll give you honest My... feedback, okay, over email. <laughs> My conversations with Adam made me reflect on a trust issue that I know I personally really struggle with, and it's this need for control and constant self-improvement in so many different areas of my life. And I think this is something that we all worry and think about a lot, the way other people perceive us. It's like this constant nattering in our minds, you know, how did I do? What did they think of me? What was their experience of me? And think about how much energy that we invest in that, which is kind of crazy because we can't control what other people think about us. We can influence and shape it. And that's where Adam's views on feedback, his almost obsession with feedback, is absolutely fascinating. As we heard from him, feedback can be this incredibly rich source of information that can lead us through and help us find ways to improve that we would never see in ourselves. But at the same time, feedback, if we're not careful, can be this other mechanism of control and perfectionism. And often in our lives, just like me at the Lincoln Center, we have to just pinch ourselves and say, enjoy the moment. You're okay as who you are. And even if it wasn't quite as perfect as you might like it, there is no need for self-improvement right now. If you've enjoyed this episode with Adam Grant and want to find out what happened to the crew of astronauts, I'd recommend listening to his smash hit podcast, Work Life. If you'd like to learn more about Adam's work and the studies he mentioned, check out the Trust Issues section on rachelbotsman.com. As always, you can post questions on my Twitter feed and I would be super grateful if you could leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. Trust Issues is researched by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and mixed and mastered by Matt Hill from Rethink Audio. I'm Rachel Botsman. See you next Monday and thanks for listening. Listener.